Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Uh, this is a special day, as you know, by your presence. Uh, it's Easter Sunday, and there's a tradition that goes on uh, in different parts of the world this morning, and it goes like this. I say, he is risen, and the church says in response, he is risen indeed. All right, so I'll, I'll do my part, and then you do yours. How's that sound? All right? He is risen. Oh, that's a beautiful sound. That's a beautiful sound. That's a beautiful sound. Uh, well, we've been uh, waiting for your attendance here at NBC for some time. Those of you who are joining us at home or on the roof, uh, he is risen. And I hope you'll say it back to me, uh, wherever you may be. I also want to just say, uh, it's, it's been so good to see some of you for the first time in a very, very uh, long time and see your masked faces. Uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. And uh, I just want to say how good it is to be preaching again live and sharing the good news of Christ on Easter weekend uh, here at New Vintage Church. Uh, we treat this day differently. That's why I have this, this I, I'm wearing shoes with laces on them today. I, uh, I'm, even, <laughs> I'm even wearing this thing. I, I'm told it's called a sport coat. Uh, makes me look like a big six foot three Easter egg. Uh, my color scheme and we dress up and we take pictures and we do all this stuff because we're trying to say in some way that this day is different. Uh, this day is unlike the others. This is a day where the story of stories, uh, we've been in a series called Storyline here at NBC all year long, and we've been looking at some of the great stories of the Bible and what it tells us about God, how he inter interacts with his people. And so we really kind of reached the crescendo or the climax today here on Easter Sunday. And let me just ask you without cheating, okay, so we're going to take the Bible and put it to the side. It's ineligible for a vote, okay? Uh, the greatest story ever told. What is it? Uh, some people would say, well, it would be the oldest story that still has an impact, in which a lot of people would say it's an old, ancient, Near Eastern story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. All right, well, that's very, very old, thousands of years old. Um, but most of you are sitting here going, what? I don't think it had an impact on me, and you're probably right. Uh, so let's take that one and put it aside. Some people might say, well, it's the most books ever sold. All right, well, in that case, you'd be looking at Harry Potter, uh, Harry Potter has sold a lot of books, a lot of books Harry Potter sold. Uh, some people might say, uh, well, how about revenue generated? All right, well, if you do that, then you're looking at Star Wars. Uh, and a lot of you would go, well, oh, Star Wars, and usually all the nerds and go, ah, Star Wars, and they do their thing. And then the literati, the snobs among us would say, well, the writing style is how you would judge a truly great story. And so that points us to the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings, perhaps, with Tolkien, or one of those kinds of stories, all right? Well, it wouldn't surprise you to know that most of those stories have behind them, actually, the Christian story as their root, including Harry Potter, uh, including the Chronicles of Narnia, including Lord of the Rings. They borrow and steal from the biblical story. And the Bible is not a story. It's a library of stories. This particular story today, I want to suggest to you, is the greatest story ever told, not just because of the impact that it's had on the world, which nothing comes close, uh, and not just because nothing has ever come close to sales of the Bible, uh, but because it is the story that continues to change the lives of people in ways that no other story can. I can watch certain stories, uh, I can watch Lord of the Rings, I can watch Harry Potter, I can watch Star Wars or whatever, and I will have a very emotional response to it, or I might go, wow, that was cool, or wow, that was interesting, and then I go on with my life. But this story is different. This is a story that transforms people, that changes the lives of people 
to this day. And even on today, you know, this day that we call Easter, if it's you that needs the life change, my prayer is that you'll hear uh, God reaching out to you today and that you'll consider entering this particular story. Now, unlike the other uh, great stories that we've mentioned, uh, the author of this particular story isn't dead. Everybody else? Gone. Now, you could say, well, George Lucas isn't dead or whatever. Yeah, he's going to be soon, though. Um, <laughs> same with J.K. Rowling and these others, okay? The, the, uh, the good Lord will meet him soon. Um, but I want us to go back to this great, the greatest story in all of the library of the greatest stories that we call the Bible and go back to the empty tomb. We'll join Mary Magdalene there. Been quite a week for her. She was a true follower of Jesus just seven days before. We talked about this last week. She was there when everybody came and threw down the palm branches and screamed Hosanna at Jesus. Probably got her hopes up that this might be, in fact, the big moment where he would, would break into human history in the way that they had all hoped for. She stood next to her brother, Lazarus, who had been raised from the grave himself. People were there to see him. Jesus had already shown the proclivity to do these sorts of things. And so she has this emotional time where she goes from seven days with the palm branches and the hallelujahs to maybe four days or so later watching them nail Jesus to the cross when those chants, because again, as we talked about last week, they thought Jesus had come to save them from Rome, and when in reality, he'd come to save them from hell. So he comes for a different reason, and that as a lot, is still the case today. When your political views are disappointed, you can get pretty upset. And they get upset, and now they chant crucify him, and they want Barabbas released, that zealot who had gone around even whacking people, like, like in the mafia way, whacking people uh, for his political causes and things of that nature. Okay, so, so that has changed. We are a fickle crowd, we humans. And then after she watches him be nailed to the cross, this man who had cast seven demons out of her, changed her life, raised her brother from the dead that all of a sudden now she is in this moment where he's been crucified and all she wants to do is go care for his body, but they tell her, sorry, you can't do that. It's the Sabbath. Can't work on the Sabbath. And so his body's just thrown into the tomb. It's wrapped, but she can't treat it. And so all of a sudden she has that feeling that many of you, if you've lost a loved one, you know that feeling. I'm sad. My eyes are puffy from crying. My throat is hoarse. Uh, I feel kind of numb walking around. And you know how important it is that somebody treat that body with respect and dignity. And you want people to know and to understand how great they were. Oh, if only you knew what it was like to be with my spouse, my grandmother, my brother or sister or my child or whoever it was. I just want you to know. Well, she has to have all of that and a bag of chips. She is somebody who has thrown herself completely into Jesus' ministry. He's not a hobby. She's not a fan. She is supporting him financially. She's hosting parties for him at her house. She is fully, completely devoted. And so finally, she's probably watching for that first little crest of the sun to pop up over the horizon and looking for the sun to rise. So she's now allowed to go treat the body of Jesus. She goes to the tomb and sees a pile of clothes. So initially, she's kind of cynical about it. 
She thinks somebody took the body. Something else must have happened. So she sprints back to John's house. That's where John, Peter, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, they're all there. And she goes, hey, you're not going to believe this. The tomb is empty. So Peter and John take off on foot. It appears John is faster than Peter. He gets there first. But he doesn't want to go inside. He's not sure what happened. He's a little timid. Peter shows up huffing and puffing a few minutes later, barges right into the tomb. Typical Peter. Goes right in. They look around. And they go, we got to tell Mary. We got to tell his mom. So they go back to the house to find Mary. Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene stays back at the tomb. And at this point, she just can't handle it anymore. She breaks down crying. And in John chapter 20, 11 to 18, we read, quite simply, the greatest story ever told. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white while seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around, and, Jesus saw, and she saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She recognizes that voice all of a sudden. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. All right, so that question, who is it you're looking for? In her exclamation, I've seen the Lord, that illustrates perfectly the glorious impact that this story has on human life the second it's encountered. But I want to talk about it as a, as a story today and why it's different. Now, this story is different than other stories. Uh, we'll start here. This one's true. This story's true. Out of all the great stories we've mentioned, they have one thing in common. They're all fictional. Now, there's no doubt. I mean, I've never met Frodo. Um, if you have, I'd like to meet him sometime, or Harry Potter, or any of these folks. Uh, I have met Aslan in a certain way, um, but the difference is that Jesus Christ, there's no doubt about the historicity of his life, or his crucifixion, and frankly, his resurrection either, which is attested to by lots of different witnesses, including people like Paul, who were his chief critics, like people that went around and killed Christians for being Christians. And so, you know, this, this idea that somehow they all just kind of imagined it, or they all thought it was true, but it really wasn't, doesn't seem to match up much with history. And that comes from inside the Bible and documents outside the Bible. So you have this, this question of the truthfulness of the story and the fact that I can, I can sit there and go, okay, um, I, I don't know anybody that, again, has met Frodo, uh, that has met Luke Skywalker, uh, that has met Harry Potter or Weasley, or any of those, Snape, or any of those guys, okay? And, and there's something different if a story is true. You look at the results of the story, the impact that it had on the world around them at the time, the fact that the people who attested to the fact that they had seen the risen Christ, 
were often killed for saying so. Wouldn't be that hard to simply recant and keep your life, but they wouldn't do it, including Paul, who had been a persecutor of the church, going around killing Christians, and on a dime he stops, you turns around, and now all of a sudden starts preaching the truthfulness of the resurrection because he's seen him, and everybody that looks at him to the Christian community is not, yeah, good, he gets it. They're terrified of Paul because they know what happened. He has to have one of the brothers in the church speak up for him, say, no, I've been with him. This is legit. He's not trying to embed himself in our midst. I think God's done a miracle in this man's life. And he goes on, shipwrecks, whippings, imprisonment, et cetera, et cetera, because he's that convinced that this story was true. So it, a great story that's going to change the life of a person is very different if it's fictional versus if it's true. You look at the impact on it, right? The uh, Tim Keller talks about this in his book, The Reason for God, about how in the slave cultures at the time, people were slaves to Rome who woke up to the gospel and started sharing it and preaching it, meeting in the catacombs and under threat of, of Roman oppression, and how unlikely that would be if really it was just kind of a made-up deal, and, and the moral of the story was simply, hey, look, uh, good triumphs over evil, be nice to each other, um, let's draw some inspiration from it like we would Star Wars or the, uh, you know, whatever, uh, that, that all of a sudden slaves all over the empire would simply go, you know what, actually be nice to each other, such a powerful message. I've, that makes my life of miserable oppression so much better. Yeah, I'm willing to go ahead and suffer for that. It, it makes no sense. When you put it all together, okay, there's a different thing about this story. And if it's true, then the right response is to proclaim that death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Christ. Point two, this is a story we're in. Okay, this is not like the others. Uh, I can watch Star Wars. I can watch Harry Potter or read Harry Potter. Uh, I can travel with the hobbits. I can travel with the... Uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because I have that as a nickname for one of you guys here in the church, uh, with the hobbits <laughs> and, uh, and others, okay? So um, I, I just, as I do that, I go, okay, that's great. It, but is, is the gospel supposed to be read the same way? Is it like going to a dentist's office and picking up that eight-year-old copy of uh, Good Housekeeping or whatever they've got in there and opening it up and I read it and I find something interesting, then I close it and I walk away? doesn't seem so. I mean, that's not the way it's spoken of in Scripture. Now, this is a, a sense in which it is like Narnia. In Narnia, right, it's a story. You open the wardrobe, you go inside, and now you're living inside. You're engaging it. It reminds me of a play I was told to go see in New York. I went and saw it, um, and it was different. I was told it was going to be different. I go to this abandoned, empty warehouse in the Chelsea district, and there's this line all the way around the corner of these people, and I was told it was going to be an immersive experience. It was indeed. You walk in, you pay an obscene amount of money to see this play for, for, for what I thought I was going to get, and I go inside, and they give you no instructions whatsoever. Where am I supposed to sit? And they just say, go. Okay. You know, that's what I get. You know, no, no seat, no VIP section, no, you know. And so you walk in, and each room has a scene going on. And when you walk in, you become part of the scene. So when you walk into that room, you have no idea what's going on. You can just tell something's going on. So if there's a fight going on in that room, you become part of the fight. If you go in and there's a person in need, they ask you for help. And so your job is just to go into each room, check out what's going on in there, and then become part of the story. 
And I thought to myself, I go, that's kind of what the gospel is. It's a place where you go, and my guess is they probably stole it, just like most of the great stories. That the invitation that comes with the empty tomb is to be a part of this very true, very real story of how God is changing the world one day at a time, one life at a time, and allowing the power of the resurrection to permeate the hearts and the lives of people and to change their lives all over the place. Uh, When Paul speaks about this, after listing off all the other things in life that we tend to have a lot of affection for, he talks about fame, he talks about education, he talks about pomp and circumstance. Here's how he, what he says in Philippians 3. It captures it beautifully, this part of being a part of the story. Philippians 3, 7 to 11. He says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. So that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Now get this part. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I hope you heard him. What he's saying is, I want it all. I don't want to treat my faith or Jesus like, oh, a buffet where I only eat the dessert. I want the whole thing. I want to know what his suffering was like. I want to know how he thought. I want to know how he taught. I I want to know what he felt. I want to know what his suffering was like. And yes, I want to know what it's like to get on up out the tomb. I want all that. That's what it's like, being in it, being in the story, not picking it up and reading it, and then between the Sundays, closing the book, setting it on the coffee table, see you next Easter. No, 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 that's not what this story is. That's one of the things that makes it so wonderful. Maybe you're like this lady. Her name's Pat Welsh. Looks like everybody's grandma. You know her best as the voice of E.T., Ouch, right? That's her with no voice manipulation whatsoever. That is her actual voice. They couldn't find anybody. They couldn't find the right voice for E.T. Spielberg and his technicians were scouring the earth looking for just the right person, just the right voice to give that extraterrestrial a voice. One day, his tech is in a store And he hears Pat Welsh talking to a clerk. And he just had his eureka moment, he thought. The Lord provides, I'm sure he thought. He hears her talking. She smoked two packs a day, Pat Welsh did. So she looks nice, but you know, you know she was a problem on the weekends, you know. Look at her. So she she smokes two packs a day, gives her a crummy voice, and the next thing you know, one day she's just going to the store, next time she's out voicing E.T. She also did voiceovers for a lot of small uh, Star Wars parts. So she became this fairly, um, you know, uh, well-known voice actor, despite the fact that she had damaged her voice 
with a bunch of smoking and probably all sorts of other stuff, all right? So Mrs. Welsh here becomes this prototype for how people are called into the story, right? She's not planning on it. She probably doesn't deserve it. After all, she had torched her voice with cigarettes and whatever else. Well, you can't use anybody like that. She's never done a voiceover before. You can't use her. She smokes a lot. Like they're going to retire her jersey at Philip Morris when it's done. Like, like smokes a lot. Right. And she's not looking for it. She didn't show up in interview or audition. Peter, drop your net and follow me. Okay. Is it because he was impressive? It doesn't seem so. Not much of a runner, we learn. Um, when he goes to Israel, when God says to Israel, I choose you. Israel, you kind of get the sense of thinking, well, of course you do. And God says, not for the reason you think. I'm picking you because you have nothing going for you. <laughs> One of those great thanks but no thanks kind of moments. He says, you are so ordinary, so unimpressive that you're going to be perfect for this because when great things happen among you, nobody will look and say, Israel did this. They're going to say, God in heaven must have done that. Israel can't part the Red Sea. Israel can't do this. Israel can't do that. But God can. Surely God is among them, right? And that carries on. The people that are, are called by Jesus, Mary Magdalene, a woman with seven demons, right? Peter, a fisherman, a tax collector, the guy working for the IRS of his day, um, zealots, people that aren't necessarily the people you would line up and say, okay, do they have, the, have they been to Harvard Law School? Uh, any of that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that you've got... Now, there are plenty of intellectuals, there are plenty of smart people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that have been devout Christians in the kingdom of God. Not diminishing that. All I'm saying is, the, we need to, if you're out there and you don't think God can use you, would call you or whatever, remember, remember, he has a way of doing those things. There's a fellow that's walking on the Via Della Rosa with Jesus as he's carrying the cross. Jesus stumbles under the weight of the cross. The Romans go, hey, you, get over here and help him. Next thing you know, he's right in the middle of everything, right? But that's what can happen. And I bet, I just bet that there are some sitting in this room that God's going to call when you least expect it. And you'll walk out of here with a smile on your face. Next thing you know, you're going to be saying, ouch. <laughs> He's going to pull you in. He's going to pull you in. So this story's different. It's true. Okay? We're in it. We're in the middle of it. So even if you don't understand why, even if you don't understand when, God will call you if you're open to it. The resurrection isn't something we read or watch. It's something we live. It's the victory of Jesus over the grave that gives our life meaning. Lastly, one of the things that sets this story apart, it doesn't end. In fact, this story's been going on so long, it doesn't even have a beginning. Like, it's always been. All those other stories? What? You got five Narnia Chronicles, I believe. You got, uh, what, three Lord of the Rings, and then you got The Hobbit. That's kind of like on the, on the, <laughs> on the side of it. Did it again. <laughs> um, then you have... 
you know, in the, the, I don't know, uh, 15,000 Star Wars movies, 86 Harry Potter books, um, right? But you know what? They all have an end. You know why? Because the author dies. This story is different. Because in this story, oh, they thought. They thought they had him, right? They thought, we'll end the story right here. We're just going to whack the author. That ends the story. And they didn't realize that that was the climax of the story, was killing the author only to find out that he can't be killed. So they became part of the story. They actually helped write this amazing story in the act of trying to mess it up. But that's one of the things that makes this story different. Now, people miss this part, right? And they like what Christianity represents, and they like, they like Jesus. Uh, you know, he's a good guy and really happy that, that he said a bunch of nice things about loving people and, and uh, you know, uh, tipping your waitress or whatever else they think he said. And, and they miss it because what they love is the drama. They don't love the story. The story isn't just the feelings you get from the story. It's the fact that it's true. And it's the fact that you're called into it to live it. And the fact that if you're in Christ, your story has begun, you're in the story, and that story doesn't have an end. It never really even had a beginning. It's always been. It is reality. It's what we actually live out and live in. It's what explains the insanity going on around us and the way forward out of it, what the answer is. It says that Jesus himself is real, not dead, alive, and real. His death is real. His resurrection is real. His promises are real. His return is real. Heaven and hell are real. The call of the empty tomb, very real. And that call doesn't change. It's the same for us as it was for them. Paul put it this way. He was talking about baptism and the symbolism of being buried in baptism, the death that takes place there. But he continues, and he says this in Romans 6, 5 to 11. He says, since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourself to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. He's saying, oh, it's just getting started. Now, he died for this reason, so he could rise. And so that you and I, who were slaves to our sin now, wouldn't have to be shackled by that anymore. It's, a, it's an imagery of, of slavery and freedom or prison and being set free. And it doesn't stop. It just goes on. We don't have to be, in the sense that he was re-crucified on a daily basis. He died the death that we deserved so that we could live the life that he wants for us and have the eternity 
that he died for. It reminds me of this place. It's Charles Street Jail in Boston. Charles Street used to be home to the most notorious characters, we'll say, in Boston. Inmates among them, Frank Abagnale, if you've ever seen the movie Catch Me If You Can, he was, we'll say, housed there, hosted there. Um, it was a paragon of prison architecture at the time. People loved it. They go, wow, what a beautiful prison. I'm sure the guys in there felt exactly that way about it. <laughs> uh, but it fell into disrepair, and by the 1960s, they condemned it. But that didn't keep them from putting prisoners in there. And so for 17 years, people continued to be prison, imprisoned there, even though the building had actually been condemned formally. In 1990, the last inmates were transferred out. And then somebody came in, and they turned it into a hotel, a luxury hotel. It's called, ironically, the Liberty Hotel. And they had some fun with the past of this particular structure. Listen to this. Okay, the cheapest room at the Liberty Hotel is $319 a night, going up to $5,500 a night. The restaurants inside, uh, one of them is named Clink, and another one is Scampo, which is Italian for escape. The bar inside is named Alibi. Uh, and so they go, they go on, they produce this beautiful hotel, they lean into the history of it. But I was struck by the story of a man named Bill Baird who had been a prisoner there. And on the 40th anniversary of his being sent there as an inmate, came back as a guest in the hotel. And what, what that must have been like to walk in there and the kind of memories and goblins running around in that place for him. But here's what he says. How you could take something that was so horrible and turn it into something of such tremendous beauty, I just don't know. You see, what was once used to imprison, what was captive, is now a place of beauty used by the free. I hope you hear that message today in this story. Each human heart given over to God is like that. Once captive, he says. Now placed for the free. And what God has set free can no longer be held Captive, just like death couldn't hold him, it can't hold those who believe either. Now, there is no shortage of uh, inferior stories out there. You got the gospel of money, you got the gospel of sex, you got the gospel of me, you got the gospel of recreation, you got uh, the gospel of family, which is one that kind of mistakes the gift of God that family is for God himself. The gift of fill in the blank. You probably know where your idols are and how you shaped them. Those are inferior stories. They're fake. They're not true. You can live in them until you die. But this story is fundamentally different, and it's different mostly because of this unique story that we celebrate today. That Jesus Christ was raised from the grave. And that story puts Jesus squarely at the center of everything, okay? And any story that tries to displace him from the center is not a biblical story. It's not the story of stories. It's not the greatest story. It's a fake one. You know, it's no, it's no um, secret that most of those 
great stories that we talked about that are outside the Bible have their roots in the Christian story. Tolkien, Lewis, Rowling, all Christians. They stole from it. Um, And that's fine. Because in their own way, they highlight the same kind of story that we read about today. And I think if we have an ear to hear, we might hear the voice of Jesus saying to us, follow me. The voice you're hearing isn't a hallucination. It's the living Christ saying, follow me. May those who have ears to hear, let them hear. We're going to take the Lord's Supper at this time. Uh, we call it that and communion, same thing. If you ever hear us use that lingo, if you're new to church, we do this every week here at New Vintage Church. Jesus said uh, at the Last Supper before he went uh, to the cross, he wanted uh, his disciples to do this in remembrance of him. So we do that. You should have gotten a little bag when you came in. We have ushers that have some extras if you missed it coming in. Um, and um, just hold your hand up, and they'll, they'll see you. There's no shame in it. Don't feel any pressure, but if you'd like one, by all means, take one. The bread and the cup represent the body and blood of Jesus, and so we remember him now. Today, let's do two things, though, as we take this. Uh, one, let's celebrate a risen Christ. This memory of, of his death is, is great, and it's something he asked us to do, but let's not forget the other side of this, which is that he rose. So we're not celebrating his death like we would somebody who's actually still dead. We're celebrating a risen Christ. And then second, let's, let's just take some time to celebrate the fact that all over the world today, the global church is together and doing this very thing. And we're connected to those believers and everywhere around. I mean, Iraq and Mexico and Korea and China and Australia And all over the globe, people are saying with one voice this morning, he is risen, and we say back, he is risen indeed as we take this bread and cup together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for each discouraged heart in this room, I ask that you encourage it with the story of the power of the resurrection. And as we take the bread and the cup, Lord, uh, we pray that the risen Christ would fill our hearts and our lives that we would say yes to the story that changes all other stories because we believe it's true. We believe we've been invited and called and we rejoice that it doesn't end at the grave but that we like he someday will be raised as well. For the gift of heaven, Father, we give you thanks and for the gift of brothers and sisters who all around the globe, all over the country, all over this city, all over this state, all over in, in, in the most far-flung parts of this world, there are people today who are celebrating the gift of the resurrection. And we say with them today, in the name of Jesus, amen.